God is holy. God is righteous. God is true. He doesn't just tell the truth. He is true. He is truth. And all of these go together. Okay? Now, God as our creator has a legitimate right of say over us because he created us. But he created us in love, you know, conformed and to be like him. He created us to be in his image. The whole problem was uh, sin and the fall, which as I said last week, we know was all Eve's fault. And so, but we will forgive her. We will forgive her. In fact, she blamed the devil, hey. So it was the devil's fault. That's okay. We will help the angels kick him in to hell. So in Christ, so the fall. So it was against all of this that man sinned. And Paul tells us, if we go from Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 2, he talks about the fact that there were streams of revelation that came. Basically, all of humanity, Paul divides into two groups, those who have had access to the Word and those who have not had access to the Word. So those who have had access to the Word have a revelation of God that's very specific, very direct, and it comes from the Word. Those oral traditions that Abraham passed down and others, Moses later recorded, first in the first five books of the Bible, then later in increasing revelation. But they had the word. They had the patriarchs. They had the covenants. They had God acting on their behalf. And so Paul talks about the fact that they themselves, who had in it the law, which the law was the embodiment of all of this, of the holiness of God. So I want to talk about it because some people were getting really worried last week when I was talking about the law. The Bible says the law is righteous and the law is good. The law is of God. But it could not change us because it didn't take into account the weakness of our fleshly sinful nature. So as a means of salvation, it is set aside. But it still remains an expression of the holiness and the righteousness and the trueness, the character of God. So if we introduce it and we talk about the law, we're not talking about all the ceremonial laws, the 600 and whatever. We're talking about the Ten Commandments, which all expressed righteousness. Because you can split the law into half. Half the law talks about our relationship to God and are predictive against um, sins against God, and the other half against fellow man. And so it covers everything. So it's an expression of the righteousness of God and of the holiness of God. So in other words, the law, when it first came to Israel, had a requirement. It put a requirement onto people. So in other words, when the law came, it required them to be obedient, to measure up, to the standard of the law, which if they could live up to, would then equal righteousness. Is that good? So it would mean if you could live that law, fully keep that law, you would be what? You would be righteous. So Paul tells us now that the people who've got this law, the people of Israel, they themselves, although they were the carriers of the law, the holders of the law, entrusted with the law. He said, if you regard yourself as leaders and light and guides and teachers of this word, but you yourself are breaking that very law, if you steal, if you are fornicating, he says, then what good is it just to have it? 
He said a true Jew is not one that just has the law, but one who fulfills the law. So he said, so if you, having the law, you sinning yourselves, it's as if you had no law. Because there's no righteousness. And then the second group of people was the rest of the Gentile world outside of the revelation of the word. But Paul tells us that they are without excuse. Because God has retained a testimony of himself and a degree of revelation of himself in the created universe. So he says this, from the beginning of time, the beginning of the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities. Number one, his eternal power. Number two, his Godhead or his divine attributes is clearly seen in what is made. And so David says, you know, day to day, the heavens pour forth speech. There's not a place in the world where its speech has not gone out. So Paul says, even the unbelievers who've never had access to the word have had sufficient revelation of God in creation to respond to. But if they are still sinning, they too are guilty and there's no righteousness. And he said, but they've got another testimony. The second testimony is the moral universe. Every people group, every cultural group has got morals and morality that reflect the character and the nature of God. Everybody with me? And so he says, so every cultural group, if there's anything good in that culture, ultimately you can trace it back to a revelation of God and his goodness and his greatness and his holiness. And so they are measured against their response to that. But even that, Paul says, They are not fulfilling it. So Paul comes to a point towards the end of Romans chapter 3. And he says, they are also unrighteous. So God then has bound the whole world over to sin, over to unrighteousness. Because he, as the righteous holy God, has found that there's no righteousness in the people of God who hold the law. And there's no righteousness in the world, despite the fact that they've had two streams of revelation. So he said, so there's no one righteous. No, not even one. And so Paul, when he introduces the gospel in Romans chapter 1, he talks about the fact that a righteousness from God is being revealed. So something else is being revealed. And he says, and it's embedded in the gospel. He says, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. First for the Jew who had the word, then for the Gentile who didn't but had the other two witnesses. And then he says, and this righteousness, the introduction of it is so amazing. So he says, it's not by a new way of trying to obey the law. He completely sets that aside. Now listen, though it is good, though it is of God, Though it reflects the character nature of God, he sets that aside, not as not reflecting the righteousness of God. He sets it aside as a means of attaining righteousness. Is that okay? So he says, so this is out. Then he introduces something that was spoken of in uh, Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 4, 5, somewhere around there. And he talks about the just shall live by faith. So then faith is introduced. And Paul introduces it right in the introduction of this incredible epistle. And he says, this righteousness is being revealed from heaven. And he says, and it is by faith from first 
to last. So it's not law and then faith. It's not faith and then law. So I'm going to change it. It's not what you do and then faith or faith and then what you do. No, 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 no. He says it's by faith from first to last, beginning to end. The whole of your Christian walk is by faith, first to last. Is that okay? So listen, so just as you got saved, your sins forgiven, by faith. You received the baptism in the Holy Spirit, by faith. Everything is by faith. You operate in the gifts, by faith. Amen? So listen, how will the full and final redemption of our bodies come? So it's going to be by faith, isn't it? Because it's faith to faith, salvation to salvation, grace to grace. Amen. Life to life. Life and life more abundantly. So all the way out throughout the Bible, the just shall live by his or her faith. Now, I want to just go a little bit further. So Paul talks about this whole thing with the law. And he takes us through. So Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 2 the two streams. Into chapter 3, he starts to finish off the streams and he, he gives the example, if the Gentiles who don't have the law do by nature what the law requires, then they have become a law unto themselves. Their conscience is now accusing or acquitting them. And so, and so he starts to talk about the conscience that is quickened by God. Anyway, so he goes on now into chapter 4 and he says, all right, you guys, you love the Old Testament. You're not in the New Testament yet. So let me take two examples from the Old Testament. What about Abraham? Was he justified before he was circumcised, after he was circumcised, before? You know, when was Abraham justified? Abraham was justified when he believed God. Then he becomes an example to all of us. And he says, okay, let's take your great king, David, who writes this, you know, how blessed is the man who sins the Lord remembers no more. And he says, how did he get to that place of blessedness? He got there by faith. So he uses two classic Old Testament examples to introduce this whole matter of faith. It's by faith in the finished work of Jesus. Is that okay? So Paul says this. Now, early in chapter 3, he begins to introduce the person of Jesus. And he introduces the fact that Jesus was the only one righteous, the only one who was able. And so he came, and his life was given as a sacrifice. He calls it propitiation. A better word is atonement. So his blood was the atonement, was the cover for our sins. And his blood was shed to pay the price. And uh, listen, can I just chuck this in for all you students? Can I throw it in? Who was the price paid to? Was it paid to God? Because, you know, I used to think that, but um, it would mean then that God was in somehow so angry with us, he needed some kind of satiating, you know, of justice. And it would make God a little bit mean. Because he would be no different from the secular idols and gods. We're angry and wrathful and vengeful, and you have to go and make sacrifices, you know, to appease this angry God. So it couldn't have been paid to God. It's definitely not paid to the devil because he had no power over our lives. So I think it was just paid. So, for example, if you go through a really hard time and you really, really, you know, and you go like, man, I, I really paid. 
You know, as an athlete, I trained and trained and trained. I really paid a price to get this. Well, who did you pay it to? No, no one. You just paid. So Jesus just paid the price. In other words, his death, he paid. It wasn't to anyone. Okay, it's a revelation. It'll, it'll come. It'll come. Okay. So it wasn't to anyone because God is not angry. God was never our enemy. For God so loved the world. While we were enemies, Christ died for us. Not God. God was never an enemy of ours. God was never angry waiting to hit us with a stick. Never, 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 never. He sent Jesus. Is that okay? And so he's the atonement for our sins. And it's by faith in that that changes everything for us. So Paul then just starts to talk about something that is just so amazing. He says he is the atonement. I don't want to go into this too much because I'm going somewhere else. Are you all happy that Jesus died for us? Okay, and it was the atonement. I always love this. You know, in that box called the ark, and then the two cherubim over the top, it was the glory of God used to appear there. But on top of this box, a lid was made, and was like a tray, and the blood was poured into there. That was the mercy seat. That was the atonement cover. And I always love this. Inside the box was the stone tablets of the law, was the jar of manna, and it was Aaron's stick. But there was the law. But God puts the blood here because mercy always triumphs over judgment. But you know that there's something even higher than mercy because above are the wings of his love. Over it all is his love. And so it was because of his overshadowing love that his mercy could come and the mercy triumphs over judgment. And so when Jesus came, he was the mercy seat. The cross is the mercy seat of God. It is the place. Amen. It is the judgment seat of Christ. Yes, I like this. So Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 5. You can read it down to verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account for the things that are done in flesh. And the bad news preachers preach that even you as Christians, you will never stand before the great white throne. No. And you won't get <laughs> But you will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and you're still going to answer for being so naughty. <laughs> yeah, that day when you stood in church and you said, yes, Pastor John goes on and on and on. I wish you'd just shut up and let us go home. And it's going to be flashed on a big screen, and I'm going to go, really, you thought that about me? What? You know, you know. And the outfit you were wearing and the other sister, you know, was like. <laughs> on the screen and everyone's going to be on the judgment seat of Christ. No, no. The judgment seat of Christ is the cross. The cross is the dividing line. Amen. So all men must, uh, in that sense, appear before the cross and give an answer to the things done in his flesh. Whether good or bad. In other words, whether life or death. Which did you choose? Is that okay? Second Corinthians 5 verse 10. 
And so it's on that line that I want to go. Because Paul talks about this justification, this righteousness that comes. Now follow me. He goes from chapter 3. I've just introduced it because he says this. For all have sinned and fallen short of the? The what? All have sinned and fallen short of the? The glory of God is His holy and righteous character and nature. So all have sinned and fallen short of this. In other words, he could have also as easily have said, we have fallen short of this, expressed. So we have fallen short of that. But the next line is so beautiful, but are justified freely by the grace that is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Is that okay? By faith. Good. All right. So, so Paul talks about the fact that we've fallen short of that glory. So Paul tells us, just as an aside, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, he says, We with unveiled faces are beholding the glory of God in the face of Christ. And we are being transformed from glory to glory in ever-increasing glory. So there was a glory in the law. But we are being transformed from that glory to that glory in ever-increasing glory. So let me just take you back to highlight this. In Romans chapter 1, Paul says, right after it, verse 16 and 17, where he says, in the gospel, a righteousness from God is being revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Faith to faith. But then in verse 18, he says, but the wrath of God is also being revealed at this time. Why? Because the cross stands as the judgment seat. And all who reject the cross are demonstrating in body, not the good, the bad. The rest of the letter, he, he finishes off that chapter showing what humanity will look like that rejects this finished work of Jesus. There's a degeneration, exchanging the glory of God for created things. But for the righteous, he leaves that because this is better news. And he talks, for the righteous, there's a regeneration, not a degeneration, a regeneration. And we are growing from glory to glory with ever increasing glory. And then in Romans chapter 4, he gives the example of Abraham and David. And then in chapter 5, he just introduces it and he just says, you know, since we've, you know, gained access into this grace in which we now stand by faith, it's a glorious thing and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God because that's what is, is coming. Is that okay? But then in Romans chapter 5, verse 5 is the first time in the book of Romans he mentions the Holy Spirit. First time. What is his first action? He has shed abroad the love of God in our hearts. By the Holy Spirit. So the first thing the Holy Spirit does is just shed abroad a revelation of the love of God. He loves me, yeah, yeah, yeah. He loves me, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the first thing he does, and then he's quiet about the Holy Spirit again. Chapter 6, he starts talking about this incredible life that is ours. I'm going to come back to Romans 5 now. He introduces this thing in Romans chapter 6. He begins to talk about 
and I mentioned it last week, a lot of the great theologians, and some of them today still talk about the mystical union between the believer and Christ. How does it work? What does it look like? So I'm explaining some of the mechanics of it. But there really is this mystical union. And Paul is now introducing it because he's answering the kind of the questions, maybe unspoken questions of the Jews. How did, how did sin come into the world? Kind of where did it come from? And Paul talks about two heads, federal heads of humankind. The first one, Adam. And because Adam sinned at Eve's instigation, I'm teasing. It was because Adam was such a wimp. He just stood there watching her eat, instead of putting her over a knee and giving her a flipping good hiding. You touch that apple again. I'm still teasing. Okay, still teasing. Okay, so, so the federal head. And so we were in a sense, baptized into him, initiated him, because when he sinned, sin came as, as sin nature, came into all humankind. And we became not sinners in the sense that we do sins, we became sinners in the sense that that was our nature. In other words, that was our image. In other words, that was our, if you can use glory in a negative, that was our glory. We became sinners. And so he's the first Adam. And so somewhere along the line, God had to end all of those generations and bring about, you know, because he was the first man. He needed to bring about a last man. And then he needed to create a new creation in Christ, another Adam, a second Adam. And so he is saying that in Christ, just like we were born into Adam and that nature and it followed us, in the same way, we are now born into Christ. And so we have been, you know, out of Adam, that one, and into Adam, that one. Amen? And that born-again experience is by believing what he did and expressing a faith in that. And he says we were taken out of and we were placed in. Now, just as there was that mystical union, that mysterious union in Adam, now there is a mysterious mystical union. In Christ. For by one man's act of obedience, righteousness comes to us. I mean, how awesome. And Paul tells us over and over and again, he reinforces the argument. He reiterates the argument. He repeats the argument that it is by faith. Not by any of our efforts. For by no one's efforts no works of any kind of legal attempt to qualify ourselves before God. Is there any justification? Is there any righteousness? In the whole process of him doing it, this became such a legal thing because Paul says it. Remember, Paul was a legalist. He was a doctor of the law. And any conflict in the character of God would detract from God. It would make him not God. So yes, he's a God of love. 
Yes, absolutely. He's a God of mercy. Absolutely. Totally. But he's also, church, a God of justice. And he could not conflict with himself. Any kingdom divided against itself will not stand. And so everything God did in the demonstration of his love, in the demonstration of his mercy, in the giving of his grace, it had to be legitimately legal and in keeping with his holy, righteous, truthful character. Is that okay? So what happened was, without contradiction to his character, Jesus came the righteous one, and he fulfilled perfectly the law as our representative. First and only man ever. And so, fulfilling all the typology and the symbolism of the Old Testament, he then stood as our righteous holy, perfect lamb, the lamb of God, who was then sacrificed perfectly, paid the ultimate price, and then he was raised and he stood as the federal head for all of humankind, that whoever would put their faith in him would be declared righteous. It's amazing. Isn't it amazing? Isn't it amazing? So it's absolutely brilliant now because Paul says this in Romans chapter 5. He says, God left the sins beforehand unpunished. In putting Jesus on the cross and sending him to die in our place, he became legal and just in leaving sins unpunished from the beginning of the world and not dealing with them because there was an anticipation of the cross. And so he could say, okay, I'm leaving it. I'm just covering over. In my forbearance, in my patience, I'm covering it over. I'm covering it over. And I'm just, because I'm a patient God. And when the time was right and Jesus shed his blood, retrospectively, it paid the price, washing away all the sin of all of the Old Testament saints who believed and and made sacrifices in anticipation of the Lamb. And so he said, then at the present time, right now, He's also just. He's also legal. He's in keeping with his character at the same time as justifying sinners. Unrighteous, wicked people. So remember I said last week that 2 Corinthians 5.21. See, I'm repeating this, but it's because you're drawing now this week. So so it's your own fault, I'm trying to tell you. So 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who knew no sin. Morally innocent. God made him who knew no sin. Morally righteous. Because he knew no sin. He was sinless. And God made him legally unrighteous on our behalf. That we could legally be made righteous and morally be made righteous. Because legally and morally, we were unrighteous. Is everybody okay with that? And so he says, God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us and take the punishment. That we might be made, made. It's a gift. Made. The righteousness of God in Christ. Made. It's a gift. And Paul talks about it. He talks about the fact that it's a gift. He talks about it in Romans and he talks about it in Galatians. Righteousness is a free gift. That comes by faith. Listen, listen. It's by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. Amen? And so it's a legal thing. It's legal. So you are legally, listen church, you've put your faith in Christ, legally, legitimately, truthfully, 
you are righteous. And not only righteous, God says, you are my very own righteousness. I know that blows your mind, but just go, wow. Sure. Just pretend you're amazed. You know, just go like, yeah, that's so awesome. And because I often do. I often quote that verse and I go, I'm the righteousness of God in Christ. Yeah, that's amazing. It's incredible. In other words, when God looks at me, he sees I'm as righteous as him. I'm as righteous as Christ. I'm as righteous as the Holy Spirit. And right there, because of that, he invites us into a relationship. Paul says, by one spirit, we all have access to the divine nature, Peter. So listen, if people start talking about, you know, there's the story about the black dog and the white dog. Which one will win? The one you feed the most. Well, then it could be a pink dog. Or a blue dog. <laughs> Listen, starve your Saint Bernard for long enough. And feed your Chihuahua. Your Chihuahua will eat the Saint Bernard. Or the, <laughs> or the whatever. You know what I mean? In other words, they would say, you've got two natures inside of you. And they're both fighting good and evil all the time because you've got two natures. No, 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 no. You've only got one nature. We participate in the divine nature. Is that okay? So Pastor John, well then where does, you know, sometimes, you know, sins come from? That's just the fruit. The root has been changed. The tree has been replaced. Those are works of the flesh. It's not your identity and not your nature. Is that okay? Yeah. All right, so let's move on. And so Paul takes us through chapter 6, and he talks about this union with Christ, and he illustrates it in the baptism. And he says, I want you to understand, because, you know, the rhetorical or the theoretical question comes up, what shall we do? Shall we go on sinning so grace may, be, may abound? No, by no means. Don't you know, all of you who believed in Jesus, you were baptized into him. So you were baptized into his death, burial, and then into his resurrection. Just as Christ died and then he raised never to die again. So you've been baptized. You've been initiated into Christ. There is now this mystical union between you and Jesus, and it's a common life that you have with him. Amen? Now listen, listen to me. It's a legitimate union. It's a legal union. I touched on it last week. There's a difference between a couple living together and getting legally married in the sight of the country and God. And that piece of paper is very important to God. Because it's legal. You understand what I'm saying? It's legitimate. And so we are legitimately in Christ. So now Paul takes us to Romans 6, Romans 7. Yeah, there's so much more. But let's skip over Romans 7 because he's actually talking about the struggle of a man who's under the law. And how he can't serve God. He's giving a demonstration of, you know, the weakened flesh not being able to fulfill the requirements of the law. Okay. Then he ends that chapter by saying, who will rescue me from the body of this death, to be accurate? Should I throw it in? I've got three yeses. I can go and I can stop any time because this is, a, this is an eternal message. Okay. Let me just throw it in. Paul says this, who will rescue me from the body of this death? 
he talked about a man under the law because he's a natural man trying to fulfill the law. And he says, that body is a death body. In Romans chapter 6, he says this. Do not, uh, you know, because we've died in Christ, he talks about the fact that this body of sin is done away with. Before your baptism, when you are still believing in Jesus, he talks about the fact that we cannot give in to unrighteousness, which is as a result of this sinful body. So it's a sinful body, and it's a body of death. Right after the baptism, he says, the Spirit will quicken your mortal body. So immediately you're baptized, your sinful body, the body of this death, becomes a mortal so physically, something changed in you when you were baptized. Because then it becomes a mortal body, which is then subject to immortality. In other words, sinful flesh cannot see immortality. But the mortal can put on immortality. Because the body of this death, the sinful body, has been changed in salvation and baptism. It's now a mortal body. Okay, so moving on. So the Apostle Paul moves on and he jumps into... Uh, Romans chapter 8, and now suddenly where the Holy Spirit is inferred in Romans chapter 5, verse 5, the Holy Spirit is everywhere mentioned. He permeates chapter 8. And he says, there is now, therefore, now, therefore, no condemnation. Listen to this. For those who are aware. That takes away of universalism. You know, oh, Jesus, you know, God loves people so much. He doesn't want to send anyone to hell. And, you know, he paid the price and, and all this kind of thing. So, theoretically, everybody's saved. No, no. Those who are? There is what? No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So, if you are in Christ Jesus, no condemnation now. No condemnation now. No condemnation. In other words, you don't have to feel guilty. Your conscience doesn't need to condemn you because he tells us that he's cleansed and washed our minds, cleansing it from an evil conscience. In other words, a conscience that tells you you're evil. So your conscience gets reprogrammed and now we have the mind of Christ. And so we think Christ thoughts. We think about ourselves the way Christ thinks about us. We are in Christ Jesus. Now Paul tells us the first thing that follows our conversion, when he says the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, all that ceremonial stuff, but of righteousness. Yeah. Woo! What follows that? Peace, Peace and in the Holy Ghost. Is that okay? And so there's immediate fruit, immediate results, immediate benefits. Once you who were alienated enemies are now reconciled in Christ. Woo! No longer foreigners and aliens, but you are now citizens and members, you know, sharers in, and, and everything else. Amen. Amen. And so there's incredible, incredible changes that come once we're in Christ. But listen, it's all legal. Now, when Paul says this, and I've got to just establish this before Karen and finish. There is therefore now no condemnation to those which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. So, that condemnation there is you are not condemned 
to live the rest of your life under the control, the dictates, and the tyranny of sin. In other words, sin is now conquerable. You can master it. Not a victim of how you were born and what your parents did and what their parents did. For if any man be the you can change. It's not an excuse. Not an excuse. We don't have. We are without excuse. Because before we were in Christ, it was not possible to not sin. Now we're in Christ. It's very possible not to sin. Before he received the Spirit, it was possible for Jesus to sin. After he received the Spirit, it was not possible. Before he received the Spirit, it was possible for him to die. After he received the Spirit, it was not possible for Jesus to die. That's why after all the punishment he took, he still had to say, Okay, it's now time. I give up my spirit. Chose the time. And then he was able to take up his life again. Woo-hoo! So if the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, will he not also... Your mortal body, your mortal bodies. So you're not a prisoner of a sinful body or sinful nature. Number one. Number two, yes, there is now no guilt condemnation because we can say I'm the righteousness of God in Christ. And if I have done something wrong, I can say sorry, Lord, which is for my sake because the forgiveness is already there. Is that okay? And then, of course, there's no condemned to an eternity without Christ and then being damned as the end result in hell. So there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So can I just take you through a couple of things? We're going to put um, Ephesians chapter 1 in the NIV on the board. And I just wanted to show you. I want to show you. Sometimes we miss this. So any attempt now, because that's so legal, any attempt now to try to earn your righteousness becomes an illegal thing. It becomes illegitimate. It becomes illegal because by your own works, you cannot set aside the legal forensic work that God accomplished in Christ. You cannot. Isaiah says, all your righteous deeds, all your works are like filthy rags. Don't even try and come and present it as some kind of means. It's illegal. The only legal thing you can do is accept it. Woo! I mean Christ. Is that okay? So there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, so Paul says this. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, Grace and mercy to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in, it's another way of almost saying Christ, okay? In the heavenly realms, with every... Is that okay? Where's every spiritual blessing? Is it some spiritual blessing? Or is it... Every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. For he chose us 
in him. Everybody say it. In him. Look at the person next to you and say, in him. You are chosen before the creation of the world to be and in his Okay, just stop there. So when will you become holy? In other words, you're already holy. When will you become blameless? You're already blameless. When did he do it? Before the creation of the world. He chose you and put you in him. And he said, you're holy and you're blameless. No charge. Already, past tense, accomplished. In love, it's another way of saying in Christ. In love, he pre us to be adopted as his sons through Christ Jesus in accordance with his pleasure and will, which he purposed, no, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Okay, next verse. In him we have, in him you have redemption through his blood. What do you ask do you have in him? The what? The forgiveness of? Come on. Come on. I mean, it's just, these are the spiritual blessings with which we've been blessed with in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. The forgiveness of sins in, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And then verse 9 tells us, and he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to good pleasure, which he purposed I mean, it's there in Christ, in Christ. I mean, who can stop that? Who can take that away? Who can deny that from you? You've been placed in Christ. It's legitimate. It's legal. It's forensic. Which he pur purposed in Christ to be put into effect. When the times will have reached their fulfillment. To bring all things in heaven and earth together under one head. Even Christ. Talk about, I'm getting drunk. Talk about mystical union. Verse 11. In him, Paul says, we were also chosen. Having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in accordance or in conformity to the purpose of his will. Next verse. He goes on to say, in order that we who are the first to hope in him or in Christ, first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ. When you heard, what? The word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a? The who? The promised, the what? Now we come back to Pentecost. I said a lot to get us back to Pentecost. The promised Holy Spirit. Paul, in this great passage of chapter 8, we're leaving Ephesians 1. I'm going to head to a close now. He talks about the Spirit. He talks about this Holy Spirit who quickens our mortal body, this Holy Spirit who 
sheds abroad the love of God in our hearts. He talks about this Holy Spirit who is in us a life principle. It's the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus, as opposed to the law, the principle of sin and death, of trying to obey the law. He talks about the fact that our bodies become quickened, we're raised up with Christ. But then he says this, for we have received a spirit of sonship. And he says the same in Galatians. And by the spirit we cry, Father, Father. We've received the spirit of adoption. And I'm going to kind of just camp around this for a while and, and close. Spirit of adoption. Should we just talk about this a little bit? A couple of minutes and we finish. So he says the spirit of adoption. And by him we cry, Father, Father, or Abba, Father. We can say Father intimately. It's not Daddy in the Aramaic. It's Father. It's Father, Father. But it's intimately saying Father. The point of it is that we are able then from here to legitimately call out to God as our Heavenly Father. Legally and rightfully. So legally and rightfully we are placed as mature sons into the family of God. We are placed as mature sons. Is everybody with me? I don't want to repeat that. You all got that. So it's a spirit of adoption. And he places us as mature sons in the kingdom. And he says this, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the what? The sons of God. Now listen to me. Listen, I want to, I want to drive this point home. Because the whole purpose for Jesus coming the whole purpose for him shedding his blood, the whole result progressively going down through no condemnation is coming to a place of adoption where I can stand as a full rights son exactly like Jesus with my Father in heaven on an equal footing with equality with Jesus. I will never be the one and only son of God, but I am a son of God. And God has graciously brought me into a union, onto a level plane with Him, where we are brothers together. And He is not ashamed to call us brothers. Amen. And so I'm put into this place of sonship. Now, the thing that I want to bring across to you, every conversation from this point onwards that the Holy Spirit has with you is a mature conversation. He is treating you as sons. I want to drive this home. Every whisper, every leading, every revelation, everything, every communication the Holy Spirit brings with you is a sonship communication. It has to do with your adoption. It's a mature leading. It's a mature communication. It's a mature conversation. He is treating you as sons. Come on, that should, I mean, that, that does something for me. Isn't that right? So, you know, my dad was a good guy. He really loved me. He just didn't know how to communicate it. He thought, you know, the more, the more hidings I got, the more I would know he loved me. You know, that kind of thing. But he couldn't communicate um, praise or recognition. All, all the things that, for example, a young man growing up would need. And uh, um, 
so I, I was fractured in my personality for many years and um, looking for, you know, things and approval and, and everything. And then I met Bib's brother-in-law, Arthur. And Arthur was the person God used to change my life. And Arthur came alongside me, and when I was 16, he was 30, so he was 14 years older than me. And I remember helping him on his stock car, and we were changing the, the tire, and we were undoing wheel nuts and all this kind of thing on his you know, racing car. And I remember him going, hey, Jono, he says, I turn 30 tomorrow. Yes, I'm getting old. And I was the ripe old age of 16. I remember looking at him thinking, yeah, yes, yes, you're getting older. <laughs> and now I'm three years past that. <laughs> oh, 10, 10. And forgive me for lying, Lord. And, um, but he treated me as an equal. He treated me. He said to me, you're the brother I never had. You're my brother. And he treated me with respect. My opinion counted. My thought counted. He would ask my advice. And just that belief changed me. Something grew up on the inside of me. That's why I want to drive this point home. Because when the Holy Spirit communicates with you, He takes from what is the Father's. He takes from what is Christ's. And He's making it known to you. It's a mature conversation. Every little wincy, wincy revelation he gives you, he's treating you as someone who's on the same level as Jesus. He's saying, I, I want to so heal your heart in sharing these truths with you and treating you as an equal with Christ that it matures you. It grows you up in the things of God. Come on, that's a good revelation. That is so awesome. And so Paul talks about this incredible spirit of adoption, sealed in the Holy Spirit, treating us as sons, mature sons. Just quickly look with me at Isaiah 28, verse 16 and 17, or 17 and 18. In Isaiah 28, well, the prophet says this, Isaiah 28. When he said, you know, I lay in Zion... Um, a stone. Let's go to verse 16. So this is what the sovereign Lord says. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who trusts will never be dismayed. You've read this before many times. Probably one of the most quoted verses in the Bible. He says, I lay in Zion a stone. Okay? A tried stone. A tested stone. A precious cornerstone. So it was the foundation stone it was also the cornerstone and related to the capstone. And so he lays that in Zion. Paul says, I laid a foundation, you know, that no one else can change, and that is Jesus Christ. So he's the tried precious cornerstone. In Zechariah 4, Zechariah sees a vision, and he says, the day I see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel, the Holy Spirit will begin to rejoice. The plumb line is the building line, the plummet with which you build. You know, it's got that little bobble on the end. And basically, you hang it next to a wall, and that will determine true. It will be perpendicular. In other words, it will be upright. In other words, the integrity of the building will be right. It will be righteous. Is that okay? And so when God laid Jesus down as the, 
the foundation stone, the cornerstone. He came and he took other stones, living stones. Same quality material as that stone. Then he started to build on the foundation stone. But he had to put the plumb line of righteousness to build the building. Amen. So that we are true to the image, the pattern, and the glory of God. He put the plumb line. That's why I said in Zerubbabel's hands or Joshua's hands, when God sees it, the Holy Spirit will begin to rejoice. Why? Because the true temple is being built. Is that okay? And so Isaiah says this. Look, prophetically, he says this. See our lane sign, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who trusts will never be dismayed. And then in the next verse, he says, what? He says, no, you go back to verse 17. I will make justice the measuring line. Okay, and what? Righteousness is what? The plumb line. So what is going to be the measuring line here? Justice. In other words, the full extent of the building will be built according to the justice of God. So justice and righteousness. So the justice of God brought us righteousness. So the whole building will be built on the justice of God. Where was the justice of God demonstrated? On the cross, in Christ. So Isaiah says in Isaiah 30 verse 18, God longs to be compassionate. He rises to show mercy. But God is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. What is Isaiah saying? He wants to be gracious. He wants to show mercy. And he will. He will do it justly. So the judgment and the justice of God is everything in the cross. So listen, church. If we can understand this, we can understand that sickness then is an injustice. We can understand then that poverty is an injustice. We can understand that any demonic attack is an injustice against the cross. For by his stripes we were healed. If we look at all the blessings, anything short of that is an injustice. Because he stretched out the measuring line of justice. And the dimensions of that temple is the full stature, the full measure, the full image of Christ. Anything less than God sees it as an injustice against the cross. In other words, it's not the portion of sons because we have been co-crucified, co-died, co-buried, co-raised, co-seated, co-ruling, co-reigning in this mysterious union with him. We have an inheritance because we are joint co-heirs with him. Anything less than that is an injustice to this whole work of the cross. Because God legitimately gave it all to us. That's why he said healing is the children's bread. It's their daily portion. I mean, that should be just part of our staple diet every day. Give us this day, O Lord, our daily bread. Amen? So if we can understand it, no illegitimate, illegal devil is allowed to keep us so the revelation of the truth can set us free. 
that legitimately, legally, it is your right that Jesus obtained on the cross to prosper, to be in health, even as your soul is prospering in Jesus' name. Did you get something? Amen. I'm saying it more and more since I've studied it. This is an injustice. This thing is an injustice. Sickness is an injustice. Doesn't belong with the people of God. He is just and the justifier. And if he said by his stripes I am healed, then the, the judge has said it. And his judgment is, it's your portion. Judgment is not only a negative thing. The righteous welcome the judgments of God. Why do the righteous welcome the judgments of God? Because they're good judgments. So if you went to court and somebody accused you, and then you got your defending attorney and he presented all the case, and it was like, oh, awesome, you can't wait. This is the confidence that we will have on the day of judgment, John says. What confidence? That our judgment is positive. That our judgment is you are just, you are righteous, you are holy, you are perfect, you are, are the righteousness of God in Christ. That's our judgment. So it's a positive judgment. So when he comes and accuses and the defense attorney comes and stands and he says, you know, your honor, here is the evidence. The judge goes, well, I've just got to make a judgment. Here is my ruling. Not guilty. Innocent. Pardoned. Free. <laughs> Healed. Prosperous. The righteous welcome the judgments of God. Woo! Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Woo! Amen. 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 What a God. Yes, what a God. Yeah, he's amazing, eh? What a God. He's done everything well. He's covered every aspect. He left no stone unturned. He dealt with everything the enemy tried to take away from us. Every single thing is now under the gamut of his jurisdiction, jurisprudence, forensically righteous. So no, it's amazing. It, it really is. It's incredible. You see what happens then, all the struggle goes out. All the effort goes out. Because Paul says, from first to last, it's faith. Sometimes we even try to present our own self-worth to God. You know, Lord, I'm a, I'm a child of God. You, you can't even present that. Unless it is, God, I'm your child and this is my right. You've provided it for me. We hear a lot about the wonderful constitution we have in South Africa. But here's our constitution for the kingdom. We read it in Ephesians 1. You can read it in many other places. In Christ. In Christ. In Christ. In Christ. I'm blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm. In Christ. In Christ Jesus. In Christ in Christ in Christ 
why don't you just see yourself in Christ now? Just use your sanctified imagination. See yourself in Him. Long time ago on the cross, everything that was yours negatively He took. Long time ago on the cross, everything that was His, He gave it to you. And since the day you got born again, He's still taking from what is His and making it known to you, revealing it to you. This week, as the reality hits home, you're going to experience the leading of the Holy Spirit more and more and more. And I want you to understand, it's mature conversation. It's conversation pertaining to sons and daughters. He'll speak to you. It's mature. It's mature. He's treating you as sons. He's growing you up. Father, as we're standing here in Christ, I pray that any sickness that is here leaves now in Jesus' name. It has no legal or legitimate right to be in this place, in our bodies, in Jesus' name. Father, I speak healing to every person. Every person watching on live stream. If you're watching right now, you're welcome to touch the screen of the device or whatever that you're watching. Sickness does not have a legitimate right to be there. It's illegitimately there. It's squatting. It's occupying space in you illegally. Because Jesus, it was said about him, was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquity chastisement of our peace was upon him and by his stripes we are healed so father whatever it is command all sickness to go right now in Jesus name in Jesus name in Jesus name in Jesus name it's yours by right take it by faith take it right now father right now Lord, anywhere where the enemy is attacking, Lord, if, if, if there is a contradiction to the cross in finances, in any other way, God, we take authority over it in the name of Jesus. Lord, I declare that there's breakthrough provision, supply, there's increase, there's prosperity, there's jobs, there's business. Lord, like Yaku shared that testimony, a man went from unemployed to a partner in a business in a split second. Father, I want to thank you that just powerfully, supernaturally, you do it right now in the name of the Lord Jesus. Where there's no deals, let there be deals. Where there's no work, let there be work coming now. Father, in the mighty name of the Lord Jesus Christ, in the name of the Lord Jesus. Father, there will be a response to CVs out. God, angels, accompany them and bring attention to them supernaturally. Father, there are some who need to be promoted Father, I thank you. They'll be headhunted. They'll be poached by other companies. And they'll do it the right way. They'll go about it right, leaving one place and joining another. But Father, I want to thank you. Your people will prosper in Jesus' name. Poverty is not the cross. It's an injustice. Struggling is, is not the cross of Christ. It's an injustice. So Lord, we say justice. We welcome the judgments of God. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name.